Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is Taking Apart Terror. And if someone says counter-terrorism, isn't this what happens in your head? The fight against terrorism takes many forms. Of course there are special ops and SWAT teams, but they're only one part of the effort. The world of counter-terrorism is as much about understanding what's in people's heads and hearts and listening to what communities are saying, as it is about guns and spies and assets. This time we're trying to discover more about what the world is actually trying to do to stop extremists. Or as we've called this episode, who's tackling terror? To answer that question, I'm joined by three people who know a great deal about counterterrorism. Firstly, two of our regular panellists. Dr Shiraz Ma is Director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation and Political Violence at King's College London. Hello Shiraz, thanks for being here. Hi, hi. And we have Noreen Chowdhury Fink, who is Director of the Sufan Centre in New York, where their research focuses particularly on counterterrorism, violent extremism, armed conflict and the rule of law. Hey, Noreen, lovely to speak to you again. Hi, Adnan. Great to be with you. And our guest in this edition is Margaret Coker, who, as an investigative journalist, has lived and worked in Iraq for nearly 20 years, including being the Baghdad bureau chief for the New York Times. Plus, she is also the author of The Spy Master of Baghdad, described as the untold story of the elite intelligence cell that turned the tide against ISIS, and which ultimately led to the killing of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in 2019. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adnan. Shiraz, if I could start with you, can I just get a, a very basic overview of um, the kind of efforts that governments are putting into this? Are governments working together in a kind of joined up way to fight against Daesh? Yeah, I think we've seen uh, a number of multilateral efforts to counter Daesh, whether that's at the military level, where, of course, there was a global coalition that came together to launch kinetic action against uh, Daesh when it held territory across both Syria and Iraq. Beyond that, broader intelligence sharing in the West to counter the terrorist threat, particularly when it was you know, extremely acute uh, for countries such as France and Germany and Belgium. And I think that's coupled with broader, again, intelligence sharing and diplomatic efforts then that have been taking place between Western countries, Gulf countries. So you're seeing, you know, different levels of cooperation taking place. And a phenomenon such as Daesh, which is itself so multifaceted, requires that level of uh, intense effort that's coming at it from a, a number of different directions. Noreen, would you would you say that was true? Would you say that uh, a lot of governments have realised that this is everybody's problem and not just a problem that's over there and they're working together now? There's been a tremendous effort in places like the UN to look at sort of 
post-Al-Qaeda terrorism as a truly transnational threat. And unlike terrorism, you know, in earlier decades, which was really dealt with each country on its own, there are a number of frameworks and international efforts that have been developed to deal with more transnational groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, for sure. And I think it tends not to be terribly sexy to talk about the UN and counterterrorism. There isn't a SWAT team, there isn't a military, it's a lot of civilian efforts. But we actually need a number of rules and frameworks in order for countries to be able to work together in the first place. So one of the things to keep in mind is that there is an end goal to counterterrorism. It's not about killing terrorists. It's about bringing them to justice. It's about prosecution. It's about some kind of, you know, justice for victims and an actual capacity building support so states can do this. And a lot of that stuff never makes the news, but it's what you need in order to prosecute a terrorist, in order to hold them accountable accountable for what they did. Margaret, one of the main things you're doing is this kind of revisionism where you're saying it's not just the US and it's not just the uh, the British who did something about this. It was Iraqis as well. And your book puts that right in the center of the story. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's very rare to have tales of heroism coming from the Islamic world. We know that it's sexy to have firefights on screen and to have, you know, kill counts of, of terrorists. What we know is a harder story to write and report is the actual people on the ground whose countries have been torn apart by this violence about how they suit up and go to work and try and make their, their countries a better place. And so the spymaster of Baghdad brings to life the stories of, of three people. Um, one is the man that I call the spymaster of Baghdad, and he's the head of this small elite uh, intelligence unit. And they're called the Falcons, as-Sukur in, in Arabic. You know, they've risen from the ashes of Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and they have uh, sort of specialized in this very sort of high-profile and narrow um, uh, goal, which is to target the leadership of first al-Qaeda in Iraq and then the Islamic State when it um, uh, announced itself in 2014. And then two of his officers, and I tell the stories about this band of brothers, how they tried to recreate a um, culture of intelligence gathering in a country like Iraq that for so many years was known as the Republic of Fear because of the secret police and the intelligence apparatus that Saddam oversaw. And they've been incredibly um, successful in their work because they have basically gone old school. You know, as the Western world has gone high tech with um, a big uh, emphasis on electronic surveillance, they have stayed um, finding human sources, cultivating human networks, and actually understanding the networks in which um, jihadi terrorist groups work and operate. And then um, by getting inside those organizations, by turning double agents through a variety of um, personal, cultural, psychological tools, they've been able to really infiltrate and then destroy from within. So Noreen, Margaret's talking about destroying from within. What about what's going on outside? Are there things going on behind the scenes internationally that we don't know about? Well, there's a lot. <laughs> I think that one of the key things is that, you know, a lot of follow-up has to take place in terms of bringing a counterterrorism operation through to some kind of prosecution or some kind of accountability mechanism. And in order to have a successful prosecution, we need evidence. A lot of that evidence is in the battlefield. And so I think um, there's certainly the 
ongoing kinetic operations that are more targeted at groups. Uh, but I also think that long process of collecting evidence, making sure we're putting out fires where they're popping out and making sure there is a sustainable political solution. I think that's the huge problem we're facing, that in the absence of any kind of political certainty about what comes next, we are, you know, we're looking at a, a potential lull before we see, you know, another round of, of groups emerging. So there is lots happening, Noreen, but like you said, this is a lull, you know, and there's going to be more. So it doesn't sound like we're doing very well. Shiraz, what could we be doing better when it comes to countering terrorism? We've had two decades of a war on terror, and here we are with a threat landscape that is more diffuse than it was on September the 11th, uh, 2001. You've seen an ideological splintering and fragmentation of what might be called a Salafi jihadi tradition, which has taken on hugely localized characteristics all the way from Indonesia through to Mali and uh, pretty much everywhere in between. And so in that sense, uh, it would be hard to say we've got it right. There are a number of different approaches. Um, and part of that does involve the hard element, which is the, the military side of things. But a lot of this is also about the same thing we've been talking about for two decades, right? After ever since 9-11, the hearts and minds component. And I don't think anyone has yet cracked it. That's the problem. And I think part of it, uh, you know, is the way that we frame these things. We, for ages, it was always said, you know, what is the counter narrative to the vision ISIS is selling young British Muslims or young French Muslims or young American Muslims? And I always thought that was quite a perverse way of framing it because surely ISIS should have been sitting there saying, What's the counter-narrative to the American dream? What's the counter-narrative to the successful British Muslim, to the successful French Muslim? So we ceded the center ground already to them by establishing ourselves as doing a counter-narrative to their vision, whereas we didn't have a vision of our own that they were having to rail against. Countering terrorism through creating a counter-narrative. It's about giving people another way of looking at things, another way of being. Thuray al-Khadi is a teacher from Raqqa who decided that what she could do against Daesh was to empower people through education. And the people she wanted to help the most were women. She started in secret during the occupation. Life was surely very difficult under Daesh's rule. It was very difficult for all parts of society, including men and women. All the women suffered the most. They destroyed women and their presence entirely, deeming them only responsible for housework. Women were forbidding from leaving home, being productive, or fulfilling their role in building society. They repressed women despite using them for their own personal enjoyment. I mean, what they were doing in public contradicted their lustful hunger for women. I hold a degree in sociology, which they view as part of philosophy, so it is forbidden. During Daesh time, I always had to say that I didn't study at all if someone asked me about my education. They would send somebody to ask about me because some Dash members were my neighbors, just opposite my house. It was really terrible whenever I left home, returned home, or had a gathering of women at home. Many women used to attend our literacy courses at my house since Dash was against education. I was asked three times to go to Al-Hisba that the Dash is religious morality police. I was subjected to a lot of pressure under Daesh, so I decided to leave. Thraya went north with her family, but she didn't stop working for change. And again, it was women, 
forced to leave their homes as she had been, that she was trying to help. I have always been focused on helping displaced women who had to abandon their memories, their dreams, their homes and their lands. A woman needs to feel that she exists and proves herself through work. I had over 400 women from all across Turkmen Barih town. When they arrived, their main goal was learning. But they also wanted to forget about the tragedies they had experienced during Daesh. The majority of women were mothers of martyrs or wives of martyrs and daughters of martyrs. My course lasted for about six hours and these women did not want the time to end. They said, we want to stay more because when we come to learn, this helps us forget the worries that have accumulated at the time of Daesh. We do sewing, women's hairdressing and first aid as well as teaching. We will establish society by uniting women. Each group will comprise 20, 30 or 40 women. And when they are side by side, they will create an integrated community. We have women from all over Syria, and they exchange ideas and skills, traditions and customs. There were things which we were unfamiliar with, and when women from Homs, Aleppo, Damascus came to us, we exchanged ideas, broaden our knowledge, and create new things. Noreen, when it comes to countering terrorism, how do you know what the best thing is to do? Where do we even start? Well, I think the the first stage is to realize that there are different layers of people joining and then there are different layers of the organization that they're joining. So some people will be joining for, you know, 50 bucks and a gun. Some people will be joining because it's cool and their family and friends are doing it. So why not? Um, and some people will be joining it because there's a hard ideological commitment to, you know, the ideology of the group or the strategic political objectives. And so I, I, I sometimes like to think of them as a corporation. You know, there's some people who just join it. It's a, it's a job and there is a different level of commitment. And that means the motivators are also going to be very different. I think. One big shift we've seen in counterterrorism over the last two decades has been a shift towards including more and more perspectives in this fight. Right. So 20, 30 years ago, when we were talking about counterterrorism, it was largely SWAT teams and psyops and things like that. Now we are talking about bringing in educators, media uh, community groups, the entire spectrum of counterterrorism has increased to include these discussions because we know that different people are motivated for different reasons. Part of the um, interesting thing and the challenge is that now that you have more individual or small group or, you know, quote unquote, lone wolf terrorism, you no longer have to bridge that gap between an individual being motivated and then tight command and control from a group that is issuing orders and HR forms in triplicate like Al-Qaeda did, you know, with references. But I think our first error is when we assume that everyone is joining for the same reason or that there is, in fact, a single set of motivators. Margaret, do you want to come in on that? I, I was going to pick up on what Noreen was saying in that intelligence professionals, the spies who are trying to um, understand uh, and get inside um, the jihadi organizations, they have a 
deep appreciation for the different levels of motivation. Those are psychological pressure points in which, you know, good interrogators can use to turn people and make them double agents or get information with, without having to resort to torture and all of those, uh, you know, the terrible tactics that were used um, earlier on um, when we started this epoch that we know as the war on terror. Uh, give them a benefit that they've lost, you know, whether it's seed money to go start a shop somewhere else in Iraq or whether it is the promise to get... Um, a brother or an uncle who's been in jail um, without charge for years and years, get them free. You know, those sorts of psychological understandings and cultural um, appreciation is how slowly and carefully um, local communities can fight terrorism. Shiraz, do you want to pick up on that? One of the things I think that, you know, we haven't talked about enough is the two major urban centers that become... uh, uh, so sort of jewels in the crown of the ISIS territory, which is Raqqa and, and Mosul, then these are the areas uh, of the vulnerable Sunni poor. And ultimately, securing stability and peace in Iraq and Syria requires those Sunnis to have a degree of security about their future, about their lives, about their physical safety, about their physical security, that expectation that when you go to bed at night, you'll still be alive in the morning, that when your child goes to school, they will return. And and that's really uh, the case with, uh, I think, the pragmatic decision that locals had to make with ISIS. Ah, here's a brutal, sectarian, millenarian, Sunni regime. Well, we understand that better than we understand a Shia militia. So people are making pragmatic decisions in the interests of their families as locals. And I think that's something we have to be sensitive to. The work that Thraya al-Hadi began in Raqqa and then took to the north is now making a difference all over Syria. Each one of my close friends has begun to establish a women's civic complex in their areas. I would love all women to do as I do, to be actors and influencers in building this community. Now we have in Al-Bab a center called I Am Not Alone a group of women from Homs who are able to do the work that I do, and more. What we are doing is having a huge impact. Take, for example, sewing workshops. We used to import clothes for ourselves and our children from different places. Now, however, thanks to sewing workshops, we make clothes that our children, husbands and people supporting our projects to wear. But for Thiraya, this isn't just about economics. I mean when we talk about freedom or the concept of freedom or the principle of freedom, freedom for women is not the removal of their clothes or hijabs or the customs and traditions only. We love our Arab customs and traditions. Women's freedom is the freedom of their thoughts, self-expression, and their presence within the society to be influential. Women are the nucleus of society. So we are starting to show our ideas, raise our children in the Islamic way, but in our way. These are my thoughts about Daesh's departure and its reflection on us. Thuraya fears the return of the violence, not just because of the physical dangers, but because of what it will do to society. But she also knows that the fight begins in people's minds. I'm afraid of when the plane starts to go to the 
I dread the idea that security will be undermined again, that the warplanes and the bombing will return. This is what I fear the most. The things that the women are doing should be highlighted. Women have become the entirety of society at present since the majority of men are not at home. They are probably either at war, displaced, or have left the country. Therefore, women should be highlighted so that they are giving the support they need, whether it's financial, emotional, or mental. When it comes to what I can do in my job as director of Sahabat Watan Association, I can fight extremist ideas through awareness-raising sessions, counseling sessions, brochures, and discussion sessions. I would like to send my message to the Syrian society as a whole. People of Syria, we all need each other. Even simple people who might be thought insignificant or lacking impact. Those are exactly the people who are most capable of building society. All of us must establish one state that comprises all the Syrian young people from all religions and sects. We do not want sectarianism in Syria at all. All of us are Syrians, with all our religions, customs, and traditions. And we must stand up for each other. So right now, there's a whole breadth of things that are being done. So we are fighting against these people physically on the ground. We are uh, stopping their funding. We are stopping people going to join them. We are trying to change the story for people here about what that organization is. And we're also trying to change the story for people who have been living it, the Iraqis, for instance. Okay, so all that's being done, but what can what can we do? What can I do sitting here in the UK? How should I be handling this? I think there's a lot that individuals can do. It could simply be that the way you digest and talk about news and the way you talk to your local politicians, the way you advocate for policies or, or communications, you know, that's something individuals can do. And I think that, you know, given the prevalence we have seen of marginalization and human rights violations, um, being sort of two common elements in radicalization or mobilization to violence. I think anything you can do to, you know, try and address marginalization in your own space and anything you can do to challenge and mitigate human rights violations goes a long way to addressing two of the, the key factors. And then also, you know, what, what's the expression? If you see something, say something. That's always important. And I think certainly here in New York City, we benefited very much from a couple of folks who were willing to spot, you know, unusual activity. We would have had a huge, you know, bomb in Times Square and, and there's been numerous other risks that have been stalled. Um, so I think that is quite important. But I, th I think the marginalization, the human rights violations, um, the general watchfulness about how you can both be helpful and where you see a risk, those are things everybody can do. Margaret, do you want to come in on that? For for many many Arab speakers in the Middle East, uh, the message of Daesh has been completely discredited um, after four years of of bloodshed and, and terror. And you know the Western world seems to um, still have this um, sort of spooky fascination um, with snuff films and this kind of violent pornography that Daesh trucks in. And when Hollywood um, puts out its own slasher flicks and that sells, it's, it, those are hard images 
challenges to um, to discount and, and look away from. But I would challenge people um, to do just that. I would say delete it and broaden your own horizons, find some other narratives. And there's a lot of different bridges that we can gap by just remembering that the vast majority of Muslims um, want to to just have normal lives like, like we all know them, um, whether you're living in Birmingham in the UK or whether you're living in Baghdad. So yeah, finding different points of view, telling those stories and making sure people understand each other better. Shiraz, this idea of people understanding each other is something that Daesh tries to interfere with, right? I mean, they like it when groups like the far right or anyone badmouths Muslims because it upsets people, makes them easier to recruit. Is that something we need to try and counter as well? Yeah, ISIS uh, have long uh, sort of promoted the idea of there being this tension between Islam and everything else, between Muslims in Britain or Muslims in Europe. And, and so actually the rise of the far right or the rise of ISIS, which can be seen as the flip side of that coin and young men and women choosing to get involved in that, these are failures of integration. These are failures of civil society. People don't attack what they're part of. If you remember when Mohammed Sadiq Khan orchestrated and, and led the 7-7 terrorist attacks in this country, a number of years ago now, um, in his video justifying that atrocity, he said, you are bombing, gassing, raping, killing, imprisoning my people. And the interesting point that was the my people, who are his people? Iraqis, a country that he'd never traveled to, who spoke a language he didn't speak, or his fellow citizen strangers that he was killing on the tube that morning, right? Those were his people, but he didn't feel that connection. He felt this other metaphysical, supernatural connection to, to people uh, somewhere that he had nothing to do with. So, you know, in that sense of what can we all do, that's what we can do. We can contribute to that greater sense of civic self. I think in a way that's the pressing issue of our time because our communities are perhaps more polarized and more fractured than they ever have been. Greater civic capacity, I would argue, is the best long-term inoculation to any of this. I'd like to thank Shiraz Mark, Noreen Fink, Margaret Corker and Thraya Alhadi for helping us to understand what's actually needed to create successful counter-terrorism strategies. That's it for this edition of Taking Apart Terror. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying this series, please do leave us a star rating and a review. It makes a huge difference to how many people find us. And of course, follow or subscribe for free so you don't miss an episode like the next one, where we will be asking, once an extremist, always an extremist? Is there a cure for radicalization? I'm Adnan Sawa. Until the next time, goodbye.